Nobody warns you about the potential relationship pitfalls that occur after the arrival of children. You may seem prepared with the nursery items, daycare options, and the state-of-the-art crib, but have you prepared for the added stressors to your relationship? Hi, I'm Miranda, a Gottman-trained couples therapist. And I'm Aaron. I work in the financial industry, and Miranda and I have been partners for over 20 years. And we've had our fair share of ups and downs ourselves sure after have. becoming parents. Join us as we sit with couples sharing their experiences of how love has changed since the transition of children. Whether you are trying to conceive, currently pregnant, already have children, or experience loss and infertility, this podcast will showcase authentic, real couples, just like yourself, who are navigating love after lullabies. I will also share communication tips and tricks from my experience of working in private practice for over 10 years in the state of Oregon that can help maintain and even improve your relationship. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you get something out of today's episode. Today. (laughs) (laughs) You guys have quite the story. Really, really interested to hear what you guys went through and really how it affected your relationship. Have you guys done any podcasts before? I do a ton. I've done a ton of them. And um, so normally I do the foundation stuff just because it works out that way. But um, so this one's kind of fun because we get to do it together. Yeah. Yeah. We're always so excited when when the couple is willing to chat with us because it's important, you know, to have both sides. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, we go through this together. It is exactly um, one of the few times where in the world where men are not the stars mm-hmm. um, and, and focuses not on what the man does or says, um, mm-hmm. which is very odd. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad to be happy to be part mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, yeah we're, we're your, grateful. Your perspective matters for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's awesome that guys are on the backseat on this whole thing, but also provide a really important role. So we met uh, in our graduate program um, during our master's in nonprofit management. Um, We were friends for a few years and then started dating and got married after just shy of like two years of dating. I was 34. You were 39. 39. Um, So, you know, we, we knew we wanted to have kids. We, we started trying, you know, pretty quickly. Actually um, on the first date, Michelle asked if I wanted right. kids. Right. I was kind of like, I was like, listen, I had gotten to a point in my life that I was like, I was ready to do it on my own. And so I was like, I'm not going to get involved in a relationship right. if it's not going that way. So like, you know, right. All the things that, you know, girls are told, like, don't say these things on, on like, you know, the first couple months. I just like laid it all out on the table on the first day. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so. interesting, interesting enough, you said that you were going to do it on your own. So like you were right. really into having kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. There was never like a doubt of that I would have kids. And I think Mark, it was like a little bit less definitive whether mm-hmm. or not you would do it on your own. And I think it's, you know, in some ways, like there's a difference between a woman doing it on her own and a man doing it on his own. Yeah. And so we started trying right away and, you know, really, we were both healthy and no issues that we knew of. Um, so we thought it would be pretty quick. And the months went by and the months went by. Nothing happened. Finally, after um, about six months of trying, I was like, let's go get tested. Maybe there's something wrong with one of ours. And what they found was that everything was good. There's a few numbers here and there that could be improved slightly. Ultimately, it was infertility 
with unknown reasons, um, which is very, very frustrating. And actually, I mean, tends to be the majority of IVF people usually are, you know, into the like, we don't really know kind of thing. I was against IVF, so we did not do it right away. We did some IUIs. Finally, you know, I was kind of just going crazy on these meds and I was ranging from being super weepy all the time to feeling like I was jumping out of my skin. Um, and we were doing it for these IUIs, which have a really low success rate. Um, and so finally, after a few of those, I thought if I'm putting my body through these with all these meds, let's go for the one that has the better success rate. So we started with IVF. And so we got pregnant on our first round of IVF. So it sounded like it seemed like, well, maybe, you know, once everything was like kind of controlled, we could just do this and it would happen. I was just shy of think of seven weeks um, when I was at work one day and I noticed I was bleeding. Um, so I called, uh, the nurse, you know, said, you know, it's not uncommon at this point in the pregnancy for there to be some spotting. Um, and at that point it was just spotting. Uh, she said, but why don't you come in and we'll take a look and see. And so, uh, we made arrangements. We both left work, went up there. Um, by the time Mark had come to pick me up from work to go, I had started really bleeding. So I was, you know, pretty certain. And they told us, um, so the doctor did the, the ultrasound and told us that they could see a gestational sac, but no baby. Told us we had lost. It was the Friday before for before Mother's Day. So like, what a great, you know, kind of thing. We actually sometimes like laugh about that Mark had to then cancel. He had ordered me an edible arrangements for Mother's Day and he had to cancel that. And sometimes just like when I need a good laugh, I think of like him on our front lawn, like tackling the delivery guy and like fruit flying everywhere because he didn't know he was done in time. He's like eating all the fruit. In the <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and you know, we really mourned that weekend and, you know, tried to kind of like decide what, what this all meant. At that point they said I would miscarry naturally, but they would follow up with some tests to make sure I was actually doing that. I went back for repeat blood work and then they called me and told me that my numbers were actually rising. Um, and so they said, why don't you come in tomorrow? We're going to do an ultrasound. It may be that you need to do a DNC or something like that. And so we went back and they found a heartbeat um, when this repeat ultrasound and oh said, God. okay, we were wrong. Baby's just measuring a little bit smaller. And wow. so you're pregnant. So go back to doing everything you were doing before Friday, and this is Wednesday. I mean, well, you, I think, were probably the most shocked. Um, I had had a feeling I was still pregnant, and I just didn't say that because I thought people are going to think I'm a little nuts. Um, but I had had that I, feeling. I would have um, thought she was nuts. Right. Like, I would have tried to talk her out of it and been like, honey, yeah, this sure. is not real. This is just what you right. want. Right. Mm. Mark is a very cautious driver, and famously, he almost got us into a car accident leaving the doctors because I think we were both like, wait, what happened? Um, totally ran a red and, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, So I wasn't going to out you, but, you know, just in case. <laughs> uh, that night, I um, actually I took a lift to meet my sister um, for something, and uh, as I got out of the car, I felt like a gush. And it's the first time ever in my life that I, I was hoping I had peed myself. Um, and I knew that the, that wasn't the case. Uh, and so I massively was bleeding enough to the point where we went to the emergency room. And then I had fully miscarried. You know, that was really, it was really tough. Um, I was even weaker because I had lost a lot of blood in that time. And just, um, and then to have the double whammy and the like loss the up about and then the down, right? Like it was just, it was a lot. We think, we don't know. We've talked to some doctors and they 
they have said that they think that's a good argument. I have very like in I had very good intuition with some with a lot of things, and I always was dreaming of twins with our with that pregnancy. Um, we only implanted one embryo, but it could have split because of the way I lost. Um, there is some belief that maybe it was twins that I lost one twin and oh, then I lost another. We don't know for sure. I mean, we will never know. Yeah, I think, you know, the first part of the loss, I think we really just like turned into each other and really relied on each other. And granted, it was only for a few days. Um, and I think after that second loss, I think there was so much hurt. And I feel like we kind of turned against each other a little bit and pushed back. And so we definitely... We had um, some ugly fights. Right. Were, were the fights like like kind of bl- like putting blame on each other? Like what? They had nothing to do really with at least my memory mm-hmm. of pregnancy or anything. It was all like dumb stuff. Right. But we both needed to lash out at each other mm-hmm. or lash out at the world. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, when you're living together, <laughs> it is really easy right. um, to lash out at, at your wife right. or your husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think we both had a lot of guilt. You know, I had guilt and I think, you know, most women, right. It's my body, right. My body was supposed to, you know, keep this baby going and it didn't. So I've helped a lot of guilt and a lot of shame over that. And I think similarly, the night before the kind of first part of the miscarriage, we had had a fight. Again, about something I'm sure stupid. We're not big fight, you know. We're not big couple that fights. But um, I think I was just like really tired, and I think we were just not used to like me being pregnant and that energy level being so low. And so I think that that just did that. And I know like you've talked about that you've had you had a lot of guilt over the fight and thinking that that mm-hmm. had somehow caused this law. And of course, like logically, right. We're, we're intelligent people. We know that that's not actually the case. Um, but it did kind of feel a little bit, you know, trying to look for an answer and a reason why, and that, you know, feeling like that was very much um, it. So we had planned a getaway trip at the, for Memorial day weekend to uh, go out to Colorado. We went, it varied between, we were still kind of a little bit in the fighting thing it also was good to get away and to like not be in the day to day. And I think that that changed some things. And so, you know, it was a little bit of a mixed bag of things. I still was not physically myself. Um, and so actually ended up coming home with strep throat because I think my immune wow. system and everything was kind of shot. I felt a lot of, we need to just get back right back up and, and do this again. I felt a lot of pressure to do that, especially because by that point I had turned 35. And so, you know, the famous like, after 35, right? It all goes to hell. Um, Geriatric pregnancy. Exactly. (laughs) So, um, so I think, you know, we felt a lot of that, but, but I also on that trip, you know, said to Mark, like, I think we need to go to couples counseling. I think we need to just be able to work through all of this because we've been through a lot. And so we started shortly after with couples counseling. Glad you remember when. Yeah. I just Um, know shortly after the miscarriage, but. You know, and really just, having that time and I think that that's something so key that like I think we have this like bad label on couples counseling like you do it when you have problems and and granted like we started because we had some issues um but it's also just like time in a busy world in a busy day to just like focus on your relationship you know I think that that was really important and so we did one more round of IVF that didn't take once you do IVF once and it works you kind of think like oh well it'll just work again you know um and it didn't work and uh you know we we took a little bit of time by that point we like the embryos we had had we used up what we had had sort of had a natural like resetting point um we changed doctors which was a godsend tried again and so 
In December of 2017, we did one more transfer and that was successful. And that was our daughter, Colette. Well, things were, were still normal in that pregnancy. Um, you know, I had some scares. I had some spotting right around the same time that I had lost. Um, and that was really scary, you know, very, very much so. It did increase at one point in, in you know, frequency and, and, and um, how heavy it was. And so uh, I was put on bed rest for the weekend. It was on a Friday. And so I was put on bed rest for the weekend because I had an ultrasound on Monday. And they said, you know, just it might be that you're overexerting yourself or something. So we did bed rest that weekend, went, things were normal. Um, and it kind of continued on and, you know, it's granted pregnancy after loss is scary. And, you know, once we got past that first trimester, I think we both just felt this like huge sense of like, okay, now everything is good. So when I was 21 weeks pregnant, uh, we went to an OB appointment. Best I had been feeling all pregnancy. I finally was like, oh, this is what they mean about second trimester being better and more energy. And my blood pressure was 188 over 110. My OB was who is amazing at staying very calm and very like you know shit's okay i need you to go to the hospital i need you to go to labor and delivery and they're gonna monitor you um but please you know like go stop and have because we had a an, an evening appointment stop and have dinner and then go and and so we thought honestly that i mean we were joking going to the hospital you I mean we did stop and have dinner we were joking saying we're gonna look like idiots showing up here because my blood pressure is gonna be back down to normal and they're just gonna be like, Why are you here? And they're gonna laugh at us and like, you know, it was kind of the joke. And that did not happen. So when I got there, um, and this is how early I was in the pregnancy, the security desk at Labor and Delivery was like, Oh, so who are you going to see? And I was like, No, I'm the patient. And he was like, what? Because I wasn't even really showing all that much at 21 weeks, oh, yeah. you know? So I got admitted with severe preeclampsia. Okay. Didn't really know what was totally going on. I mean, there was a lot of just like movement and you're staying overnight and they were talking about a 24 hour urine test. So I thought maybe I was just being admitted for that purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't really know. And so finally, I don't know, probably at, you know, 11 PM, 12 um, Mark ran home to let our dog out. Our poor dog hadn't been out all day. Hadn't had um, dinner. Right. To do that <laughs> and grab a few things. And during that time while he was gone, my obese partner was finally freed from some deliveries and things to come. And she was like, has anyone like sat down and told you what's going on? And I said, no. Mm. And she said, well, you are here and you are going to be admitted until you deliver. Oh, wow. And so that was the evening of May 8th and I was not due until September 7th. Um, so just sort of, I mean, I just remember her saying, so do you have any questions? And thinking, I have a million questions, but like, I couldn't even I, like formulate words to come up with a question. I sent Mark a text message and he wrote back and he said, you're kidding me, right? And I was like, I'm not that creative. Like, there's no way that I'm going to come up with this. I mean, normally I'm supportive. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that was not necessarily my best response, but mm -hmm. it I mean, never occurred to me that that would be the case. Right, right. Yeah, and yeah, and I had never heard of that. I mean, I I knew enough people who had been put on bed rest during pregnancy, mm -hmm. but you know, at home, and our world just turned upside down. So you know, I mean, plans went out the window. Everything kind of you know went out the window. It's scary. I mean, they're telling you a lot of numbers and a lot of. You know, if you get to this week, these are the chances and this is that. And, you know, it's a lot of numbers, a lot of data. And you're just kind of like, am I safe? Is my baby safe for Mark? I think something that I never really realized until, you know, well after this part of our journey had ended was just the fear of like, you know, my fear was over my baby, right? And his fear was me and the baby. And I think it's very easy 
for somebody while they're pregnant to really not think about themselves and their own um, health. And so I didn't really think about myself. Like, yes, I knew that, you know, my health was at risk and I knew that, but like, I didn't, wasn't thinking about that. When your blood pressure is that high and in that situation, do they, was the worry, Mark, was it because you can't give a pregnant woman like blood pressure medicine? Like what, what was the, what was the I mean, you can, there, there is blood pressure meds. And so when she was admitted, they were taking her blood pressure every four hours, basically for the entire time we were there. That was the longest she ever went Mm -hmm. um, between checks. If it was ever high and I forget what the high, I think it was 160 was the number where they would then check it every Oh, they never let it go that high. 150. I don't remember. I don't remember. You know what? Mm-hmm. There was a point where like they'd check it every like 10 to 15 minutes if it ever reached a certain number. And 160 stands out, but might be 140 mm-hmm. um, as a top number. Yeah, um, scary either way. And, right. Yeah, and it's terrifying going, I don't know what the hell to do. I don't know how to be supportive. I have two people to worry about. And this is not mentioned enough. One of my concerns was, how do I stay employed? Our insurance is through my employer that year. I'm looking at it going, I've got four more months now where I've got a wife in the hospital and I'm spending every night in the hospital and trying to also go into work or work from home Mm -hmm. or work from the hospital, not home. And wanting to be there for some certain meetings and things like that, that, you know, were were great to have. I mean, there was a lot of time where I just kind of was like there by myself and like, Mm -hmm. there wasn't anything new, but there were times when like, it was important for both of us to be there and, you know, to go through some things. And like, I could have taken like an FMLA. I'd been there over a year. That's three months. So if I take that, I'm still a month short of delivery. Yeah. much less having a baby. Right. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I mean, we are very lucky, like our family is close. And so um, we did things like, for example, you know, my parents would come on a Saturday morning and like would stay all day Saturday. So Mark could go into the office on Saturday and just get stuff done to kind of mm-hmm. make up for what he might've missed, yeah. you know, Jason might've missed. And then the nice thing was like, you know, Saturdays and Sundays, most of the time, unless something goes, you know, very haywire, doctors aren't coming in for really important meetings on the weekends. And so like, that was a very, that was a very mm-hmm. big help that we could have um, just because we had family close. Um, Mark's mom came during the week um, because she was retired. And so she could come during the week and kind of keep me company at different mm-hmm. points and just break up that monotony of like, you were alone in the hospital room. Um, and so like, that was, that was great. Like I loved, you know, mm-hmm. being able to get some of that, like, just like something different, somebody to talk to, um, somebody to like be there when doctors came in and talked to you about things and just like another set of ears, you know, all of that. Because I think what's scary, you know, it's not just about getting to a due date, which is obviously was like our first priority, but it's also about the likelihood is this baby is coming early, which means NICU, which means we don't know how long it's really going to be. So yeah, so, you know, I mean, I think, you know, my hospital room became our home, you know, for a little while and, you know, really just trying to, I mean, basically stay there as long as possible. They were able to luckily get my blood pressure under control pretty quickly mm-hmm. with IV drugs and all of that. Um, but I did have a couple of spikes. And so then they would have to like raise meds or 
adjustments and like we knew that there was always like so we'd be like how much room do we have um to increase if we need to because that was like really important um because if my blood pressure ever got to a point where they could not lower it um they would have to deliver so when i was first hospitalized they did an ultrasound and clet was measuring uh about two weeks behind and they said well you know at this point like the ultrasound it's kind of all could be off about a week. So like, we're not worried about it. We're really only looking at one week. We don't love the fact that, the, that she's measuring that small, but we're hoping now we'll control your blood pressure and there'll just be some catch up growth for the repeat ultrasound. A little over three weeks later, they did a repeat ultrasound and there had been no growth in those three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then the doctors came in and recommended that we deliver um, basically with the idea of like, there's more that we can do for her on the outside than we can on the inside. So emergency C-section, 24 weeks and five days, really just, I mean, preparing us all for, you know, preparing us for the fact of like, she's not going to cry when she comes out. She's going to be really tiny. Uh, We need to prepare you that like, if the smallest tube doesn't fit her, if it's too big, we can't do anything medically. We can't intervene. And so like, we just need to prepare you. Like we don't know until we're doing it. You know, all of these kinds of things, right. Which is not at all what I expected childbirth was going to be like. Right. Um, she came out and, you know, they, they said she was a girl and did this and took it off. And then it kind of quieted down a little bit again once I got her out. And then we heard this like tiny squeak. Um, and I remember, you know, I think it was me. I might've been Mark said, somebody said, is that her? And they said, yes. And then the doctors and nurses, um, just kind of, you know, were like that she shouldn't be able to make those noises. She's too young. She's doing this. And, you know, I just figured I was like, of course she's this badass girl right. who's going to just like defy all of your odds. And she did seem to, because, um, you know, the tube, it was the second to smallest tube totally fit and totally worked for her. Um, and did that. And so she went, you know, straight to NICU. I was on an epidural um, and they had difficulty getting my intestines. Was it from decade? Yeah. So like they're, they're telling me like, all they've got to do is like, just so Michelle up. And I go, okay. Like, and at that point it had been more than a half an hour. They told us that it was a minimum of half an hour before I could see her. So I being Colette, not Colette, yes. Yeah. So I kiss Michelle and I ask if like she's okay if I go see her daughter because it sounded very simple. I go upstairs to the NICU. Um, I'm not allowed in. They're still working. Um, so I come back to labor and delivery, but I know that I have I'm not sterile anymore. And I come in and I hear two nurses saying that we can't get her intestines back in. And I know that they're talking about Michelle. Um, So when we talk about being concerned about wife Ann and Jotter, I'm standing in in a room going, I'm about to lose both. Right. Um, Thankfully, they... And I am in the room and my epidural wore off and I started feeling them on me. So they put me under and we had happened to be, we had had a couple of tiny um, scares with like the fetal heart monitor. So there was a couple of times we did go from my hospital room down to labor and delivery to be monitored. And then we would usually be sent back up. Um, and it just so had happened that we had had a, the day or two before um, we delivered, we had had one of those days and the anesthesiologist resident had come by just to talk to us anyways was like listen while you're down here whether it's today or in the future like let me just run through like are you allergic to anything how has this gone before that kind of thing and then also shared with us that because of the preeclampsia they would be very 
cautious and they would not want us to have to put me under because that could be very dangerous. This wears off and they very quickly say like, we're going to put you under. And I honestly thought I won't wake up from this. Like, okay, you know, like this is, you know, as this is happening very quickly, because they're trying to get you under quickly and, you know, all of this. So I was quite honestly, I was very shocked that I woke up. I'm always very grateful. Mark was insistent that we stopped it, that we get to stop at NICU so I could see Colette, who was super, super tiny. She was born weighing just over a pound, you know, not at all what you expect. So, you know, we're there while I'm in the hospital and kind of doing our same sort of thing, but also adding in now we're going down and seeing um, our daughter and, you know, all of that kind of craziness. Um, and then I get released, which was terrible um, feeling to like leave and your baby is still in the hospital. And when I was released, they, you know, I went from IV meds for my blood pressure to pills. And I find out I have this like, end up having this like super rare reaction to them. So I could not stop vomiting. Um, So it was like all of a sudden feeling like I was like back to like, you know, the very beginning of pregnancy, but like even worse, I was going back for blood pressure checks with my OB pretty regularly. And one of the blood pressure checks, they're supposed to be really quick appointments. They kind of check blood pressure and make sure everything's good. And then they send you on your way. She came in, she checked my blood pressure. She's like, everything's good. And I burst into tears. And I just said, I can't do this. All I do is throw up. And she and I worked, looked at it and it's some like 0.005% of patients have this reaction. So um, she had wean me off of that one and put me onto something else, um, which really made a huge difference. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean... <laughs> It's, it's a lot um, for mm-hmm. sure on, you know, on you personally and as a couple and just. Michelle at that point kind of laid down the wall with me was like, you're going to work on, on Tuesday because it was Memorial Day. I can go see Colette. Um, like I'll take a lift over. I had decided that I wanted to stay at work instead of take my FMLA mm-hmm. or my paternity leave then thinking when she gets out of the hospital, is when I want to be home right, right now. She's cared for Yeah, um, wonders in being there, but um, I was betting on my child to live. You know, and it's a lot. I mean, our days were basically, we were both getting up together in the mornings. Mark was going into work on his way into work. He was calling the hospital or stopping in or stopping in and finding out and then sending me a message and saying like, okay, this is what they said. This is how she's looking whatever. Um, and then because I was just moving slower, um, if I didn't have a blood pressure check, I was going, you know, getting ready and then going into the hospital and basically staying there all day until Mark came after work. Um, and then we would be there with her for a little while and then we would leave and go home and do it all over again. On May 31st, we did the same kind of routine. Mark left in the morning and then Mark called me and he said, um, when I called to talk to the nurses, they put the doctor on the phone and I thought, shit, you know, you know, certain things, right? When they put the doctor on the phone, it's like, this is not going well. Got ready very quickly and, you know, got there. He said, okay, well, I want to update you on everything that's going on. And I said, okay, yeah, let's do it. And he said, um, hold on, let me find us a room. And I, you know, again, right. Those are the kinds of things that you're just like, shit, this is not going well. We knew that this was always a risk. So what they tend to do is they put micropremies onto a ventilator um, when they are first born. Um, that is very, um, is life-saving. 
and really gets a lot of mycopremies, you know, like more success rates on mycopremies, but it can damage the lungs. It can essentially start to shred the lungs. Um, so they really only want them on that for 24 to 48 hours, and then they transfer them over to a different ventilator. They had tried to transfer Colette over several times, and she would, um, her numbers would drop, would drop. So then they would put her back to the other one. And essentially what he explained was that it had done enough damage on her lungs. And they mm-hmm. and basically said, we, we don't think she, her body can withstand this anymore. And, you know, he's talking to me about this and, it, you know, it sort of feels this like, crazy sounding all this stuff is coming at you I mean I was in total denial I was like this is not this is not at all what's gonna happen so he said you know I think you should call your husband and I was like okay he said you have this room as long as you want I was going to leave the room and then he stopped and turned back and he said do you believe in baptism and I said yes I do and he said I think it's time I knew what that meant um and so I called Mark and you know basically as soon as he answered I started crying I know I was definitely like in complete denial I was like yeah. She's going to pull through and this is going to be one of those stories that we tell, you know, 20, 30 years from now. Like I was imagining we're going to tell the story like on her wedding day, you know, we're going to say like, yeah. And then we thought we lost her and, you know, all of this. The point I think that it's starting to hit home for me, and I don't know if Mark would feel this way, is in the NICU shift change was when parents were kicked out. So parents could be there 24 hours a day, except during the shift changes. A shift change was coming up and they let us stay. I think that was kind of just this, like, it was sacrosanct. Like, you you had to leave. I mean, they, they, they kicked you out. And so we sat by her isolate, um, the two of us just holding hands and, you know, just kind of, like, waiting. And uh, at some point, you know, they, they were very strict about, you know, it was limit of two ga- of two visitors. At some point, I know my sister came into the room and was, was standing with me. Just all of those kinds of things were being neglected. And I thought, oh, geez, this is this is it. They were calling to, to get her baptized. And they were trying to get somebody to come. We were calling our family and, and you know, letting them know. And there was this point when the doctor went to turn to us and, and started to open his mouth to something that I knew it was like, okay, you know, this is time to make decisions. And I, I to this day, I have no idea if I screamed this out loud or not. I think I only screamed it in my head. But I just said, Clep, please don't make me make this decision. Please don't make me make this decision. And almost immediately, her numbers started to drop on their own. Oh. She's telling us. And we said, we know. Um, So they said, you know, we will keep her going. We will get her baptized. And then you guys can hold her. You know, you can have as much time with her as you need to. Um, So we had her baptized. Um, We had a room. um, And so our parents were there. um, Our two sisters and their husbands are, you know, were there. And everyone got to hold her. And um, we started off holding her and then (laughs) passed her around. And, um, and they got to hold her again while they, they checked and then they told us she had passed. Um, you know, I've talked about this a lot of times. And so, you know, it's, it's part of the reason why I think I'm able to talk about it a lot easier than Mark is. Um, it's surreal when you lose a child because you're not supposed to, right? Like, Right. Once you learn about death, you know that you know that you're supposed to bury your parents. You know that that's supposed to happen. Um, you know, even if you're not thinking about it when you're getting married, you know that the likelihood is one of you is burying the other, right? And like you know that, but you're not supposed to outlive your kids, and that's just insane to think that we live in a world where this happens. It feels, you know, surreal. And I can remember the next day, the two of us waking up, you know. 
very early in the morning, you know, probably like a 4 a.m., both waking up at the same time, looking at each other. And I remember, you know, one of us said to the other, I was really hoping that was a dream. Yeah. And and that was kind of what it felt like. It was like, that didn't, that didn't really happen, right? Mm-hmm. Did that really happen? It's very overwhelming. It's very isolating, you know, and, and it's happening at the same time, right? I was still in postpartum. I mean, I was still recovering. I was still doing all of that. So, and, you know, nobody told me about, I was pumping by that point. I was producing milk. Nobody told me anything about how to stop that, how to wean, how to anything. So I just stopped, um, which meant, you know, I, I then had pain and I had, you know, issues after that. People are there in the very beginning and they they surround you. And we had a memorial that, you know, was very big for her. And we, we limited our, our guest list and, and, you know, it was a beautiful service and everything. Um, but then people go back to their lives and you're kind of, you know, you're supposed to essentially put, go back to your lives. And I think um, Mark went back to work fairly quickly. Right. A week and a half after her death. Right. I don't know if that was the right decision or the wrong. I mean, who knows, right? There's no right or wrong in these kinds of cases. You know, just figuring that out. And I think, um, you know, really doing that. And then I was home and I was recovering and I was really trying to figure out what my next step was going to be. You know, just before I had been hospitalized, I had actually um, submitted my resignation to give time and I was going to help train my replacement and I was going to be a stay-at-home mom. So all of a sudden, you know, I had this job and I had this job that I could technically go back to. Um, that I didn't really want to go back to, but I had struggled already and come to this decision of like sort of hanging up the like professional part of me to be a stay-at-home mom. And then all of a sudden I didn't have a baby. And so like, it was just a very difficult time. And I think, you know, we definitely, you know, we grieve differently. I think everybody grieves differently. It was tough because I think for me, I, in a lot of ways, when Mark was gone, I could sort of live in a fantasy world of thinking like maybe he had her. And whereas like Mark really wanted to be at home to like come home from, you know, to me and, and feel like we were doing this together. And, and I wanted that too. And so the biggest thing we started to realize was that, you know, we had gone from being these like very independent people who, you know, had made a relationship and made a life together, but very much were individuals and, you know, did, did our own thing to, I didn't want to go anywhere without him. Like I wanted him to be there because the only person in the world who could come close to what I was feeling was him. And, you know, all of a sudden we had gone from like, we would each go on, you know, weekends away from, you know, like with friends and, you know, family and stuff like that. We had done that kind of stuff. Um, And it went to, we would do it. We tried doing it and we would just be miserable. We didn't have that comfort of the other person. Um, and that was a very big shift for us because that had not been up until that point that had not been our relationship at all. You know, luckily, I mean, I, I still credit part of the reason why I think we, you know, really survived getting through everything with Clet was we had done the couples counseling. We had put, you know, work and time into it and we had, we had a really strong foundation again. You know, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. I mean, we fought and we hadn't gone to see her and Mark decided we, we had a day planned that we were both going to go see her. Um, and Mark decided to go on his own. Uh, and so he came home and was in a terrible mood and just was like snapping at me. And you can say um, I was an asshole. You were, I was, I was being nice, you know, um, and just like, yeah. And, and so I was just very much like what happened here. And I don't even know, did I know that you had gone? I have no idea. 
I don't even remember <laughs> if I knew that he had gone. What is going on here? And and who was like, who are you? And what did you do my, with my husband? You know, aspect of trying to figure those things out. And, you know, and then really realizing things like that, that we had to do together. You know, it's like the first times that we were doing these kinds of things we did together. And I started going to the cemetery regularly to visit her. Um, and I was going pretty much every day. And the first day that they were supposed to tell us and they didn't like, we didn't hear anything. They put in her gravestone and I went on my own and was there and like, you know, was not expecting it. And that was really hard. And I remember getting back in the car and crying and calling Mark at work and saying like, her gravestone is here. And he was like, well, how does it look? And I was like, it's fine, but it's her gravestone. Like I just, it had just driven home, you know, what I had been doing. That's like the stuff that was just so hard was to, you know, get through all of those kinds of things. Um, I mean, I credit, we have a dark sense of, we had a dark sense of humor before we, we started down this journey. Um, it just has gotten darker. And, you know, I think that that was really helpful. And I think, you know, just really having each other to lean on, I think was the most helpful. Like we talk about grieving differently. And like at that point when Michelle was going just about every day to the cemetery, I was not going at all. I think it was shortly after her headstone was put in. We flipped. The cemetery is mostly on the way to work where I was working. It's maybe five minutes out of the way. And so I'd stop in every morning on my way in. Sometimes stop in on my way home. And Michelle wouldn't at all. Um, And we've gone through, both of us gone through peaks and valleys of whether, you know, what works for us at the time. And and to be very very respectful of like, it's going to change and it's going to morph and whatever that looks like. Um, is okay. And to remind each other, you know, I've gone through some stages where I just don't go for a little while and then I feel really guilty about it. And, you know, Mark will then say like, it's not that you're, you forgot her. It's not that you're not doing this. You're just, you know, right now, this isn't, that isn't what you need. And that isn't what's working for you. You know, just trying to kind of remember those things. Um, I think it's really key and really important. both dealing with healing yourselves through this process mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard to like rely on each other to support you because you're going through something different and mark's going through something different and you know you might not be there 100 percent of the time to help the other person recover because you're recovering yourself right. did you lean on did either of you lean on somebody else during that process and yeah so i, I think you know the reason why i say that we really did lean on each other um is to not to not belittle the people who were really, you know, there and supportive and, and wonderful. Um, and so like, I will say my sister was great. Um, you know, our families uh, had to get used to it very quickly. I mean, uh, we still talked about Colette and we still talk about Colette as if she, you know, is here and, you know, and she's the one also sleeping with our son. That was a, sh- a shift for, I think, um, our families. I, I don't know that they knew how to handle that at first and they they got on board they figured it out so we had supportive people but I think you know what's sort of interesting about baby loss over other losses is people don't know what to do and so we have both found I think I had a little bit more on this front than I than you did but we found people our support some of our support people just did not show up whether that is just kind of living in the like I'm gonna just pretend everything is fine or whether it was sort of 
some implication of like, okay, it's now time for you to get over this kind of thing. You know, there was a lot of that happening. We still wanted to bring home a child. And and so we were navigating those feelings too, at the same time that we were grieving. And then, you know, we had people in our lives who were kind of like, okay, so what are you going to do next? And oh, and so yeah. like, are you going to have another baby? Are you going to, you know, and it's a lot from the outside world. And so I think, you know, that's part of the reason why we probably leaned on each other more in a lot of ways was because we both had, even if we weren't, even if at that moment in time, we were not exactly on the same page, we were close. And so, you know, we could get that kind of situation from us. I was working in a domestic violence agency and I had um, a bunch of people who were social workers who were phenomenal at working with me and me talking people who were in the administration wanted to be wonderful and supportive, but it would be things like, I'd say something like, Oh, I stopped at the cemetery today. And like the people who were not social workers didn't know how to respond. The social workers did. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, or I'd be like, listen, I need 10 minutes. I'm just going to cry. And so and I think there's also like, like there's also a generational thing. I think, you know, we are I, I really think that we are of the first generation that's talking about this. And we were getting all these cards and all these people who were telling us about their losses, losses that they had I mean, like some of the people, you know, I wonder if they had ever said their child's name out loud or written it anywhere or told anybody else. Like I don't, you know, I don't know to what extent that they had had that. And so I think that's also another thing that we were finding was that there were a lot of people in our lives who were kind of of this mindset of like, I have met another lost mom. And, and she kind of told me the best thing she said was like that her mother was like, okay, so you take all those feelings and you put them into a box and you hide that away mm. and you don't look at that and you don't do this and you move on. And that she was very much like, that's, that's not what I'm going to do. Like, nope, sorry. <laughs> that's not what I'm going to do. We definitely saw a lot of that as well of people, you know, a generation above us. It's very interesting that we're like kind of the first generation that's really saying like, no, I lost a child um, and I did this and I'm, I'm going to continue living this story as that child's parent. And I think there's like to your point around the generational, there's this expectation, at least in our society, that there's a timeline for grief, right? Yeah. You, you go through the stages of grief and once you go through the stages, you're done and you right. are, you should be fine. Like move on with your life you know, it's, it's not helpful at all because the, the stages are so circular and things happen and you, you have good days and you have terrible days right. and you never know what's, how it's going to look. Good hours and terrible yeah. 15 minutes. Um, right. Yeah. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, I will, I will say, you know, just to use an example from today, um, today I went to go see um, the movie, Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret, with my sister and my mom. Okay. And um, great movie. Um, I totally recommend it. But, you know, we grew up on that book, right? And so, like, that book was a big, big, you know, issue for us. And, right. And it's talking about something. My mother had two daughters. And um, there's scenes in it where, you know, something very basic that you don't really think about is, you know, a daughter telling her mother that she started her period and, like, how that works and and a mother showing her daughter what that means. And in the middle of the movie, I started crying. Um, because to me, it was like, I, I adore my son. I love being a boy mom in a way that I never, ever thought, but I'm not getting to be a girl mom. And so those kind of se- scenes, right. That I won't have those experiences, um, mm-hmm. as the mom, 
You know, I did as the daughter, but I won't have them as the mom. It's not to say that today was a terrible day. Today was a very good day. I, I had, you know, we had brunch with my family. Um, our son was great. You know, we have a lovely day. But those, you know, like Mark said, the 10, 15 minutes, whatever it was, really hit me hard. Um, and you just don't know when those kinds of things are doing that. And, you know, and I think the other thing, too, I will say on that is you have to be only one emotion, Right. So, you know, we hear a lot of that, like a lot of pushback. Well, like, well, you should be grateful that you have your son. Yes. Every single moment of every single day, I'm so grateful for our son. That does not mean that when I grieve our daughter, that I am not grateful for our son. And those two things can exist mm -hmm. together. Being very grateful in the moment and also missing our daughter all at the same time. I need Michelle. Mm -hmm. Michelle needs me. There were days at work where I'd come home and would just start relaxing as soon as I saw her. Like, there's a lot that I was repressing, of course. Just some of that is that's how I how I handle emotions. Um, but also just to get through a day. You need to know who's supportive and who isn't. There is... Nobody more supportive of me than Michelle and vice versa. Um, I'm even going to take over saying I'm more supportive than her sister, who is incredibly supportive. Right. Um, but I, I think I think especially because it's on this, like, very key phase, right? Like, the yeah. only other person who lost Clyde as a daughter is Mark and vice versa. Like, you know, and so I think that becomes very personable. Whereas I think, you know, I mean, I, part of the thing I think with the miscarriage is it's, I'm a very big proponent of a loss is a loss is a loss. Um, but I also know there are differences between it. And I think, you know, a miscarriage, it's very hard to like, you have very little tangible, like this is, this is a child. This is, you know, a child I lost, you know, it's a loss, but it doesn't, it hits a little differently in some ways. Um, in some ways it's way worse of a pain than what we went through with Colette. And because you don't have any of those, like at least, you know, we got to hold Colette. Um, we know what she looked like. Uh, we know she was a girl, right? We don't know um, for Sweet Pea was our nickname at the time. Um, we don't know what Sweet Pea was. Was Sweet Pea a girl, Sweet Pea a boy? We have no idea. I think with that, there's a lot more like complicated layers. Whereas as weird as this sounds, we had a baby. We saw a baby and then the baby died. And so there's a little bit of like, we went through this journey together. And like, yes, it's different because we're different people and, you know, all of that, but we went through it together. And I think that there's also just a difference in Michelle carrying versus a baby physically being there. There was a lot of self-blame over the miscarriage. There's been a lot over Colette, but I think it is less so than over the miscarriage. It is also with Colette, we went through it together. With the miscarriage, it happened to Michelle. I know it happened to me as well. There's a difference. And there's a disconnect a little bit too. Yeah. Like I, I hear this a lot where a woman becomes a mother when she finds out she's pregnant and mm -hmm. a, a man becomes a father when the baby is here, you know, it's right. like, and I don't always believe that, but I think that there is something. And I think also, you know, the way we deal with pregnancy loss and miscarriages is so strange, right? Because it's, 
it's so much more common than we will ever admit, right? And so right. it's like, it, it's sort of like a twofold. It, it's this kind of thing that like all of a sudden these people, when I, you know, I, I ended up having to tell a few people, um, you know, like at work and all of a sudden people are telling me like, oh yeah, yeah, I had, you know, I had a miscarriage. I had three miscarriages, you know, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this like sort of secret club yeah. that you find out only once you're a member. And then at the same time, there's a lot of rationalization in the medical community of like, sometimes this is just what your body has to do to figure out how to be pregnant. Um, and so there's a lot of like minimizing of like, this is sometimes what you just have to, you know, just happens before you actually have a child. That like twofold kind of aspect of like minimizing the impact of the loss, but then also like opening up to this world where you're like, oh, all these other people have had these losses that I never knew about. It's a very interesting dynamic. So there's almost like this feeling of like, that wasn't really a loss because it's just something that, you know, like it's something you have to go through, like almost like as if it's a rite of passage and it's a loss, right? Like, I mean, we were, we were planning things. We were talking about things. Um, you know, we had told people, so kind of all of that, I think to have had that experience and then have instead of an experience that we very much, you know, it was a real baby and it, you know, everyone knew, right. And that's another thing too, you know, with the miscarriage, only family and a couple of close friends knew that we were even pregnant. Um, whereas like everyone knew I was pregnant by the time I was doing this. And then, you know, and then they knew that Clad had been born and they knew Clad died. And so there's like another you know, it's all different as well on that. I also will say, I think we had invested mm-hmm. necessary time in our relationship that I don't think we had invested prior to our miscarriage. We talk a lot about loss of like, we, we can understand miscarriage is loss. We can understand an infant death. We can understand those kinds of things. I don't think we talk enough about like infertility mm-hmm. is just a series of losses, right? And it's, it's very different and it's very unseen. I look back now and I think that really did affect our relationship. I think we just kept going because that's what you do. How do you guys honor Colette now? Um, A couple of different ways. So um, we actually started our own nonprofit um, after um, her death. And so um, I run that full time. This is day two in the hospital. Michelle goes, we need to do something. Right. Um, and my response was, um, honey, worry about yourself. Um, don't worry about others. And my response back to that was like, uh, you knew who you married. So I don't know why you about this. Like, and, and really the, the, what we needed to do something about that I really felt was, um, you know, going back to that moment when they're telling me I'm going to be in the hospital, you know, seemingly at the time I was hoping for months and months, right? All of these things came through my head, right? All of these things ran through my head. And when I had like a moment to stop and breathe, I realized I wasn't worried about money. Like we were lucky and I knew how privileged we are. And I was very cognizant of that and thankful every day since then that I could actually be in the hospital and I wasn't worried about how we were going to afford things. Like we could just do it. I knew we could. I just kept thinking, I was like, who can do this? I mean, who can go from one moment to the next to lose salaries or to lose part of salaries and things like that. And it was just this, you know, sort of epiphany that I had, which was like, we need to do something with this. We did. Um, So um, we helped 
families across the U.S. with financial need who are kind of in what we say are the three stages of Colette's life. And I would go to the three stages, I think, to ensure healthy moms and babies. So high-risk pregnancy, pregnancy complications, um, some sort of limitation of hours or something like that. Um, NICU stays and then loss. And we honor all, you know, that's always been my big thing is loss is loss is loss. And so it's losses across the way. We actually launched it on Clet's due date. Um, so September 7th of 2018. To date, we have helped over 1,700 families um, across the nation. And, oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And so, you know, to me, in a way that I never thought, you know, I, I think a lot of it was important to do because I don't know if I want to classify it as like survivor's guilt or what, but there's a little bit of like, my life was spared, right? My life was at danger. My life was spared. And there was a reason why. And you know, to me that this is the reason is that like, I was supposed to do this. And it's also about honoring Colette's life. I want to very much live out that this is, this is our daughter and will always be our daughter. You know, you, you would look at us and you wouldn't think we had a daughter. Um, But, you know, I wanted that very much that reality. And so I think that that's probably the biggest Mm -hmm. thing we do. And then we have a lot of things, you know, in the house we have, um, we call it a Coco Bear. Coco was going to be her nickname that we used in family photos and, um, you know, all of that. I used to have dreams of, we, we didn't find out if we were having a boy or a girl. I knew we were having a girl from like minute one. I just knew. But I would have these very vivid dreams of a girl I could see the back of her um, running through fields of daisies um, mm-hmm. while I was pregnant. And so um, we use daisies. So we have a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. We're also going to decorate her room in Muppets. So um, Mark wears, I actually just looked down. I was like, I actually use that now. But Mark, Mark wears a lot of like Muppets related socks and uh-huh. um, doing that. And, you know, we, we, um, we do donate like at Christmas time, we donate um, age appropriate toys for how old she would be. She's very much still a part of our family. I mean, we talk to our son about it. We say things about his his older sister, um, our Coco Bear. I mean, he has, from the time we did newborn photos at, I don't even know, was he even two weeks old? Uh, it was right around two weeks. Um, we'll put the bear with him. And in every picture that he is next to the bear, he has held her hand. There's a lot of books we read that are about rainbow babies. Um, we like the term rainbow babies. And so like, that's very much, that's very cognizant and very aware of it. You know, it's very much a part of our family. And we, we talk about Clet, you know, all the time. She is very much part of our family. I can't thank you guys enough. This has been really wonderful to hear uh, your story and I appreciate your vulnerability and, and talking about this again. I know sometimes it can be really difficult to talk about again and also healing at the same time. So yeah. uh, it's very mixed. But, and again, I really appreciate both of you guys being here. Yes, <laughs> thank you. I mean, yeah, um, if, if you're available here in the next uh, two, three, one, two, three weeks, yeah. let's, uh, let's get it on the books and okay. yeah. we'll, we'll continue where we left off. Yeah. yeah, sounds great. Yeah. So, yeah. Sounds great. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Okay. All right. We'll be in touch. Thank you right. guys sounds so good. much. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. We hope you got something out of today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Love After Lullabies. And if you and your partner are interested in being in the show, we'd love to have you. Email us at loveafterlullabies at gmail.com. 
And also we would really appreciate a like, subscribe, and even a share would be amazing. So she got burgers and three ears. <laughs>